Well, beloved, if you would remain standing and take your Bibles and turn them open to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to continue examining the text, the uh, kingdom parable the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples on the dragnet. And before I read uh, that text, let's ask his blessing upon us. Let's pray. And gracious Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of sitting upon your word. Lord, there are many who are hungering and thirsting for truth and yet do not have it. And yet here we are, Lord, spoiled with your rich grace. Now, Father, bless our ears to hear, our hearts to receive and believe. Lord, bless this preacher, Lord, who not only has the, the privilege of preaching the riches of the gospel, but Lord, also hearing it as well. Now, Father, come now to us in the power and the spirit and the truth of your word. Unveil to us the glories of Christ in his mediatorial reign. Unveil to us, O Lord, our obligations, Lord, that grace impresses upon us. That we would be found faithful, O Lord, on that great appointed day when our Lord shall come again and rectify and, Lord, reconcile all things, Lord, under your glory mercy, and power, and Lord, under his feet. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 47, and beloved, hear the word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age and angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Beloved, please be seated. Well, beloved, we continue this morning to open up this parable and hopefully gain great insight into the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ as he's impressing upon his disciples what the kingdom of heaven looks like on earth. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is in this world. And it has legitimate realities that belong to this world and to this life that we must accept and understand if we are going to be those fruitful citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As we continue to to be inundated with all of the cultural and political absurdities of our day. We have to be reminded and we have to constantly remind ourselves and allow the word of God to have its way with us that we see that God's wise, intricate, intimate providence is being worked out perfectly even before our eyes. There are no mistakes he has not lost control. Satan has not gained the upper hand. And God is not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering what to do next. All things are according to his plan. When you look at it, and you look honestly at the lawlessness and the depravity that's taking place right before our eyes. Brothers and sisters, you have to know, or at least you have to recognize that our God is spurring us and moving us out of our neutral positions that the church has kept for decades. Not willing and not wanting to speak to these cultural issues 
not wanting to call their own church members to account for their ideas and for their practices. Well, those chickens have come home to roost. And now we're here and we must address it from God's perspective in asking ourselves as not only individuals, but as a church body, what is the will of God for us in these times? Now you can say, well, well, pastor, what does that have to do with the dragnet? Well, the dragnet itself is more narrow than my introduction, but yet it does give way to the point that I want to make this morning, uh, the doctrinal proposition that I want to make with you, and, and then out of it is going to flow many applications that I will address. There's a moral ground that's being set forth here that Jesus is teaching his disciples and this morning us. Remember, as I begin the parable, the theme of the parable is the mediatorial reign of Christ. The mediatorial reign of Christ is both spiritual and universal. It's in the text. There is a spiritual aspect. It's a kingdom. It's that which deals with the heart and the consciences of men. And Christ does this by calling men and women and families out of this world and to himself. And then out of there, he calls ministers to go forth to preach the good news of Christ to the world. These are legitimate officers. They've been ordained. They've been sanctioned. They've been given the permission to go out and preach Christ, to preach faith in Christ, to call all men legitimately to repent of their sins. This morning, I want to take that one step further in addressing, because I've spent sort of two sermons addressing the spirituality of my point. This morning, I want to address the universality of my point and build upon it and show you the moral foundation that it rests upon. That there is a legitimate moral foundation that the office of Christ, the offices, the mediatorial reign of Christ, Rest upon a legitimate lawful foundation that our God has established and given Christ the authority he needs in order to call men and women to repent of their sins. It's a commandment. And now that Christ calls men to minister his word and sacraments to preach the word, and to gather his elect out of all the nations of the earth, that too is grounded upon a moral, lawful foundation. Now, where am I going with this? That is, beloved, that when the gospel of Christ is preached, that gospel, that ministry, that, that heralding, that commandment to believe and repent of sin rests upon a moral foundation, which means that it becomes a moral obligation for all who hear the good news of Christ preached to put off their sins and put on Christ in his righteousness. It's a moral commandment. It's a moral obligation. And when men and women reject the good news preached, they are acting immorally. Just a couple of passages of Scripture to... I mean, there are, I mean, there are hundreds of passages of Scripture we could turn to that talks about his sovereignty, his kingship, and his headship. But if you just to turn to John 17, let's look at our Lord's Prayer. And you'll see that this is the, the, the foundation of even this prayer that our Lord is offering up 
if you will. Now, this, this prayer, you may even see this title in your Bible. I see it in mine. It, it, they have the uh, human title above the text saying the high priestly prayer. Obviously, that that is related to the office, the mediatorial work of Christ as our high priest. We'll look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Or I'm sorry, verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, that's the point I want to make. That in this eternal council of peace called the eternal covenant or covenant of redemption... That as the Godhead counseled together to save and redeem a people for God's glory, Christ comes and acknowledges that he has come and fulfilled those obligations. He has kept that law. He has kept his part. He has done all that was put upon him to do. He has, he, again, he has fulfilled these moral requirements. And now as the ministry of Christ goes out into the earth and this gospel is preached, brothers and sisters, all people have a moral obligation to believe the good news of Christ and repent of their sins and to trust in him. There's no neutral ground. Now I'm going to deal with some of the reasons people give not to trust in Christ in a minute. Before I do that, I want to continue to lay this foundation. You say, well, pastor, I thought we were free agents. Now, I thought we were free. I thought we, we had the uh, responsibility to mull things over, to think about them, and to logically uh, address these matters and, and then make a decision. And so we're free You are free. But that kind of thinking is a distortion of the freedom you have and as a creature created by God. Simply put, beloved, you are only truly free to be who you've been created to be and no more. You're not free if you are a male to be a female. You are not free to change your gender. You're not free to choose your sexual orientation that fits your depravity. You are not free to do anything that you were not created to do and be in God's original creation. You are free to be that. You are free to be a child of God. You are free to be holy and righteous. You are free to do good. You are free to love righteousness. You are free to love lawful, legitimate authority. You are free to love all that God loves. You are free, beloved. To do all of it. And you are also free to hate that which God hates. To hate wickedness, crookedness, distortions, perversions. You are free, beloved, to stand against evil in God's name. The text itself in, implies, it, it helps us understand there's a, a moral emphasis in the, the parable itself. Look at verse 48. It says, and when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gather, gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. 
Now, beloved, when you read those two words, good and bad, it is certainly implying some moral standard. There is some standard by which good are to be judged by and what bad is to be judged by. In fact, it goes on in verse 49 and says, and, and it is, in, it in fact, I think there's an intensification here when he says, so it will be at the end of the age that the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and they will throw them into the um, uh, and they will take out the wicked from among the righteous. Again, there are two words that imply some moral standard. There's some standard by which as a judgment is being made that there's wickedness and that there is righteousness. Now, it seems to me as I have uh, opened this up in the original that in verse 49, we are dealing with, when you deal with the wicked and the righteous, you're dealing with that which is evilly, that is, that which is evil, that which flows from uh, original corruption, that, that, that original uh, depravity, that original deadness that all men and women have that are still in Adam and not in Christ, that is at the end of the age, Jesus says, there will be a harvesting of the nations and they will be separated, the wicked, from the righteous. Now, these two words, the word wicked is the same word we get pornography, pornea, evil, depraved. The word righteous means to do righteous, to be righteous, to be just. Now, interestingly enough, in verse 48, the words used for good and bad are not the same words. They're different words. The word for good means fruitful. Fruitful. We see that over in the parable of the sower. That is, what, who are considered to be the good disciples or the good fish? It are those who are being what? Fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. The bad are those, in the same word, used as a putrid, rotten, or corrupt fruit. And beloved, there's no neutral ground here. There's those who are producing good fruit for the kingdom of heaven, and then there are those that are producing bad fruit. There's no neutrality. And that's what Jesus went on to say. He says, how, how does a bad tree produce good fruit? It cannot. Nor can a good tree produce bad fruit. It cannot. And yet we find ourselves today with many, many professing Christians thinking that they can be neutral in terms of the world that they live in. But even as the gospel goes out, others have learned that they can be neutral in hearing this message and turning their back on it and making up a multitude of reasons on why they will not believe and trust in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, so what I'm teaching you this morning is that this ministry of Jesus's mediatorial reign, it's the universal aspect of it rests legitimately upon a moral foundation. It is lawful. It's legitimate. It comes with the full authority of our Father in heaven who has now established his son. And as Jesus is teaching his disciples who have been, who he has now been given this kingdom and that he is going to, this kingdom in this world is going to be a, a kingdom of, of sowing good news and reaping God's elect gathering God's elect, perfecting God's elect. Why? Why, you say? 
Why is that important? Why should the church be dedicated primarily to that ministry, gathering and perfecting God's elect? Because it's like the text says, verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. What's going to be at the end of the age? Judgment day. That we are on a path of termination historically. That there is a legitimate day that's been appointed, Luke says in Acts 17. That there's been a day already appointed. It's on the calendar of time that that's going to be the termination day. But that day is not going to come until all of God's good fish are gathered out of the nations. Amen. But as soon as all of the good fish are gathered out of the nations, then there's no need, there's no longer any need for this world to exist in its current condition. No need for it. And then there's an appointed judgment day where everything is going to be separated according to God's perfect and holy will. Now, beloved, next week I plan on preaching a sermon on the final judgment. A doctrine overlooked, bypassed, and just forgotten about. Hardly hear anything about it. And yet, it's a permanent fixture in two of the seven parables that Jesus has taught us. There's a judgment day. And that day will serve as a great motivation and reminder that all that we say, do, or think is going to be brought forth on that day. Beloved, there's not... There's no one going to be more embarrassed on Judgment Day than the professing believer who sat under the preaching of the gospel week in and week out to hear those words, those, those, those horrible words of Christ, I never knew you. No one is going to be more embarrassed. Not the, not the most depraved person in the world. That person who has set under these privileges, all of these outward graces, all of these outward gospel privileges and these outward visible benefits of the church. No one's going to be more embarrassed than that individual when Christ tells them to go away. I never knew you. And so we must, beloved, do our due diligence to examine ourselves, to be truthful with ourselves, and to be truthful with one another about who we are and what we are and what we need from Christ our Lord to preserve us and to keep us. Oh, beloved, we are a family of faith. We are a spiritual home and a family. I want to address, as I move into the portion of application because I wanted to spend a good amount of time in application this morning. I want to address that there's a movement that's been picking up steam over the last few years, but it's, it's the movement, it's an attack upon reformed Christianity, uh, what I would call even, even broader than reformed Christianity, but just solid Christian Protestantism. And that's the idea that uh, we are accused often of being replacement theologians. And it's a, that's a, a, an idea, a term that has been uh, fostered by the Zionists, the, the, the Orthodox Jews. And, and they say, well, this is so anti-Semitic that when you when you preach 
and you talk about the visible church and you talk about all of these promises that belong to us, the Jews, you have replaced us. Well, beloved, that's completely false. That's just not true. We don't believe in replacement theology. In fact, (laughs) all that does is should, when you hear something like that, it tells you they don't understand the scriptures. It tells you immediately that if our Lord was on earth, he'd say, have you not read the scriptures? The church visible on the earth has been on the earth since God saved Adam and Eve from their sin. And that church took a Jewish perspective when God called Abraham to work particularly through his lineage. The church has always been spiritual. The kingdom of God has always been a spiritual kingdom. It has never been a Jewish one in its nationality, in its in a sense of nationality. Never. And that's why the Jews missed Jesus. So many of them missed him. And they're like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're looking for a king and you're not him. We're looking for a conquering king. We want somebody to put down this Roman, you know, heathen. And Jesus, you, you don't understand. You, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the spiritual aspect. And that's why Paul said, the Jew is the one who's been circumcised of heart. Romans 2. And that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 10 and, and two other paces in Deuteronomy where what does God tell his people? I'm not looking for this outward nationality. I'm looking for hearts that belong to me. I'm looking for hearts that have been consecrated to me and have repented of sin. I'm looking for hearts that belong to me. So beloved, listen, the Lord has had a church ever since the beginning. And that church has had a different expression from the time before Moses to the time of Moses until the time of Christ. And now we live in this extreme, what we call the Christian age, where now this gospel is free to go to all the nations and summon all the peoples. There's a moral commandment given based upon the first, second, third, fourth, fifth commandment. Think about it. You shall have no other gods before me. We talked about the worship of God. The worship of God is built on what? Moral commandments and duties. How we come before God. How we bring ourselves before God. When we bring ourselves to God. And in what condition do we bring ourselves to God? What about the third commandment? That we would have upon our lips, what? His truth, his glory. That he has the right and the prerogative to tell us what to do and when to do it. Because he's God. And we are his creatures. Well, what are some of these excuses? And some of these, I exercise these excuses and reasons before I come to faith in Christ. But let's, let's take on some of them. The first one I want to deal with this morning since we have covenant children in our midst is I want to deal with this idea that many covenant children struggle with or covenant young people struggle with. And it's the idea that I am a covenant child and, um, and I grew up in the church. I'm very familiar with worship. I, I know when to stand up. I know when to sit down. I know the hymns. I know how to sing. I know what the expectations are. I, I, I know the language of the church. I've been steeped in it. And the issue is, are you resting in that? The issue is, Are you resting in that familiarity for your salvation versus you, like the original Jews, having your heart consecrated and Christ sitting on the throne of your heart, it being circumcised towards sin? That's the issue. Romans 6, turn there with me, please. 
if you have your Bibles. In verse 4 says, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, beloved, there is a term used in Reformed theology that talks about improving your baptism. Improving your baptism. And this is one of the things I want to impress upon you. And there's certainly application to us adults because we all should be improving our baptism. But even more so, the, the covenant young person who's trying to figure out their place in the church and in this world. That everything their baptism signified, even though they don't remember it, is irrelevant. Their memory of it is irrelevant. What is relevant is that they were baptized, they were brought to the church, they were brought to the minister, and the parents had you baptized, and now you have the marks of the covenant been put upon you, and now you have a moral obligation to walk before God in light of everything that baptism represents. And there typically are moments in your life that you come to a greater awareness of your sins. The covenant child that never comes to the, the reality of their sins is not one that has come to a saving understanding. There are moments in your life, and this is true for adults too. There are moments in your life when there are providential sermons, series. There are moments, uh, church events or, you know, um, uh, where you become more aware of your condition. And it's God's will that you respond accordingly. That it's offensive not to. If the Lord has opened your eyes to the depth of a, 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 a of sin, a delight in sin, if he's opened that door per se and, 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 and allowed you to look honestly at your own heart and you see that there are joys and delights in your heart that ought not be. That's the sign, spiritual sign that God is dealing with you and that God is wanting to humble you under this corruption and sin so that you what? Flee to him so that you repent of your sin so that you call upon him in saving mercy. And you say, well, pastor, I mean, how many times are we saved? No, no, you missed the point. It's not that I say a sinner's prayer. It's that I make use of the providential moment in my life and I call upon God for his saving mercies and power to deliver me from the power and the bondage of my sin. Deliver me, oh God. Save me. I've heard it said, and I don't know who said it, so I can't give them credit. The Armenian is all about making one decision. The Reformed Christian is about making thousands of decisions for Jesus. We don't just make one decision for Jesus and move on with our life. We make daily decisions for Christ. Because we have a moral obligation to do so. And not to do so is sinfully immoral. There's no neutral ground here. So I've dealt with the covenant child. I hope that might help some of you. The other one, which is a, a, a very popular reason for not believing the gospel preached, is I'm simply not convinced. 
It's illogical. I can't imagine the real incarnation, a virgin having a baby and being raised from the dead. It's just illogical. Uh, No, it's not. Nothing illogical about it. To think that God Almighty who made man and woman, who fashions even the conceived child naturally in the womb of a woman can spontaneously create life in that same womb if he chooses. There's nothing illogical about a God who is the Lord of the, what, the living and the dead, Revelation says. That's what, that's what he says. I'm the God of the living and I'm the God of the dead. And God can raise the dead if he so chooses. And beloved, listen to me. The issue and the problem with this excuse and the reason it is offensive and an immoral excuse is because we are not to rest in our own thoughts in judging the gospel. What did we confess by the third commandment? That we are to always trust, not just in God's names and ordinances, but what? In his word. That when God speaks it, I'm obligated to believe it, even though I shudder in my shoes and I'm weak to trust in it. I believe it because God said it. And I don't want you to fall into that illogical reasoning, beloved, listen to me, when you clearly understand what the Bible has laid before you, it's up to you to grasp it, to walk in it, to trust in it, even if you are half-hearted in understanding it. It's your job. It's your role. You have an obligation to walk and say, I don't fully understand the Trinity. How God can be three and one and one and three. But I trust that that is the case because it far exceeds my own mental capacity. And so I trust God for that truth. So again, we, we, we strip away this reason that says I am not convinced And then there's a third one. And the third one is, and this is another one that you will run into, and and it might be even in our midst this morning, that is, well, you know, I'm not sure about these spiritual matters. I just want to trust in my own goodness. I'm not a bad person. Beloved, let's go back to what we've already said. God's word condemns all people. All who have lived, God's word says, there are none righteous, no, not one. And if you stand in that covenant of Adam, that covenant of works, you are a debtor to the law and as I've been teaching you on Wednesday nights you are commanded to walk perfectly in that law and it's already broken you just continue to store up more wrath and more anger by 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 walking in your own goodness because on that day when you stand before God here's what's going to happen he's going to prove you to be a liar even though you don't think you are. He's going to prove you to be a thief, even though you don't think you are. I'll just give you one example. When you think about not giving God the glory due his name, what have you just done? You've robbed him of that which is rightfully his. 
you have taken from him that which is owed to him. It's owed. It's a debt. He's going to prove you to be a liar because you're going to talk about your goodness to men and God's going to demonstrate your heart. He's going to lay open your heart on judgment day and all the secrets of men will be brought forth. And he's going to say, look, you lusted after that woman. Look, you lusted after that man. Look, you said you liked them and you didn't. You were angry. You said you weren't. He will prove you a liar. And to make my point, beloved, he's going to prove that you're not a good person. That the whole time you were walking in the fantasy of your own mind of being a good person, you were walking offensively before God when you should have turned to him and embraced Christ in his righteousness so that as the parable states that on that day there will be a separation of the wicked and the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous are the ones that have received Christ's righteousness as their own righteousness and are accepted before God. What about this one? I mean, we could go to the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. He believed he was a good man. And God had to take the word, the commandments, and pierce his heart with it. And the Bible says that he walked away sad. And Jesus was even sad that he did not what? Fulfill his moral obligation in what? Repent of his sins and put his faith and trust in Christ for his righteousness. What about this one? I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Because when I become a Christian, I'm going to be a super Christian. I'm not going to be like those hypocrites in church. No, I'm going to be serious. Have you heard that one? Well, you need to do some more evangelizing. Because it's a popular one. I'm not ready. Beloved, the Bible tells us, does it not... Today is the day of salvation. Today when you hear his voice, remember Hebrews 3? Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. It's similar to the man that wasn't able to read the room. Now, I used that he wasn't able to read himself. And he, he was a wealthy man and he had m many goods, been blessed. There's this outward blessing that has certainly rested upon his life. And so he decided that he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. And that he would continue to store up as much wealth as possible. And yet our Lord teaches us that one night his soul was required of him. And in fact, the text is strong enough to say, how foolish was that man? He wasn't able to read the room. He wasn't able to read his condition. He wasn't able to read his life. He couldn't he, he, could, he didn't embrace the reality that at any day, any one of us can have our souls required. Why? God made the soul, and he's put time stamps on every one of us. And none of us are promised tomorrow. None of us. There is a moral obligation when you hear the gospel to believe and to trust. And, and uh, another reason for that, beloved, is found like in Matthew 10, 
where the gospel went out into the communities and those that didn't receive it, Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet. Let me tell you something. You're not, you know what? There is nothing, there is nothing promised you how many times you'll hear the gospel preached. Do you know that? There, there is no promise that the Lord says, I'll tell you what, I'm going I'm to preach for 50, I'm going I'm to give you 50 years. We don't know, do we? But God's not obligated to give you five or one. Meaning that he can withdraw those ministers and withdraw that message and harden your heart. And so that you don't have another opportunity. Today is the day of salvation, beloved. And take that to heart. Last one. Because I, I, I had a list of like 15 and I thought, well, I, I won't be able to go through that many, you know. I need to work on myself. I need to get some things straight about myself before I, you know, repent of my sin and believe in Christ. I, 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 need, to, I need to have some personal reformation or some personal reform before I come to Christ. Now, it, 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 listen, some of these sound on, it, on, on its face, okay, reasonable, right? And, and you may say, I, I, I can appreciate that person understanding that they need to do something. But beloved, it's a myth. It's offensive to God. It's offensive to Christ. It's offensive to the gospel. What? What did Jesus say to the man that said, let me go back to my father. He's ill. Let me take care of him. And Jesus said, well, I tell you, let the dead bury the dead. That the one who puts his hand to the gospel plow and looks backwards is not worthy of me or the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, there is no personal reformation outside of the reign and rule of Christ in your heart. It's offensive to him who comes and makes you a new creation when you believe or think or have the idea or just even a portion of the idea that you can somehow make yourself worthy of the gospel for none of us are, none of us are. We are all hell-deserving sinners. And when we hear the precious invitation of Christ, call us to believe and trust in him and have everlasting life, we must flee to that Savior right then. Now, if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and something I've said has struck home, you have a moral obligation to fix that today. How, Pastor? <laughs> Get with God. Let's start with prayer. Let's get alone with God and let's start praying honestly and openly to God about our condition and ask God to come in his great mercy and remedy our problem. Open up the word of God, beloved, and begin to feast your soul upon what Jesus and Peter says is the meat of the word. If our Lord Jesus come into this world as a man fully man and be subjected to all of the weaknesses of the flesh that we are subjected to in order to prove his fulfillment 
of all of the things required of him. If he could fall down in the garden of Gethsemane and beg his father to relieve him of this cup of wrath. However, thy will be done, not my will be done. Is that not a pattern for us who in moments have doubts? Is that not a pattern for us who, who in a moment lack fortitude? Amen? Is Jesus not our pattern? That when we f- are faced with the most difficult things, at least in our lives, at least where we are, in our station, that we can say the same thing as our Savior, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. Our Lord left the Apostle Paul with an outward weakness so that he might be humbled in heart and used mightily for his glory. What about you? What's your weakness? What is it that God has allowed to stay in your life to demonstrate the power of his grace? And beloved, listen to me. Let's not end not thinking about what we've said. The kingdom, the mediatorial reign of Christ rests upon a lawful, legitimate, moral foundation. That kingdom has been turned over and granted to our Lord and Savior. And now as that message goes out, we are obligated to believe it, trust it, and rest in it. Not just once. Thousands of times. Let's pray. Now, Father, bless your holy name. Come and crucify our flesh. Come and put to death our doubts, our discouragements, our anxieties, our worries, our fears. And come, O Lord, strengthen us. Help us to walk, Lord, those weaknesses that we have let us let us rest in your grace to lead us and Lord to, to build us up as you see fit, when you see fit, how you see fit and that we would trust in you Lord and not our own thoughts, not our own logic and anything of and of ourselves. We rest in you. Come and be our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord. And today be our great comforter, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.